Welcome to this edition of Big Ideas in Supply Chain. My name is Anne Robinson. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Canaxis. Today, I'm joined by guest co-host, transformational leader, Angel Mendez. And our guest today is Mike Corbo, former Chief Supply Chain Officer at Colgate Palmolive. Welcome to both of you. Now, before we get started, you two have a long history together. So maybe I'll let Angel, you go ahead and sort of introduce Mike and your relationship with them, and we'll take it from there. So college classmates, Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, same year, 1982. Um, that dates us right away, Mike, I'm sorry. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, Mike and I didn't know each other all that well in college. He was he was in the, you know, both engineers. Uh, I was electrical, engineer. he was chemical. Uh, and we uh, have since, though, um, uh, spent a lot of time on that campus, and uh, he's uh, been a volunteer leader and all that fun stuff. So we're uh, we uh, we're very proud leopards. And Angel has transformed that college and brought it into uh, the current world. And uh, you know, it's it's long past. Well, it seems like a really special year. Both of you wound up as transformational supply chain leaders. Was there anything, any catalyst that put you in a career that put you in the supply chain, Mike? You know, I, I I never really wanted to be an engineer. I, I I knew that, but I did like working with people, and I did like you know, creating things, solving problems. Uh, so it was kind of a natural operations management was kind of a natural thing for me to do. Companies came on campus, so I didn't have to didn't have to leave to get a job, which was great. You know, I walked from my dorm room and had an interview. Left Lafayette one month later, went to Colgate, and didn't leave until three weeks ago. Amazing. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about this journey at Colgate and sort of your role there over over that time period. And well, it was funny because if you take if you break it down in forty years, you know, twenty five percent of the time I was the chief supply chain officer, Amazing. which I didn't realize mm -hmm. until at, you know the end. Uh, and again, like I said, I started out as a supervisor, shift foreman uh, in an old aging plant that was built in the early 1800s uh, and watched over the, the 40 years as Colgate transformed itself, right? Moved into, closed old operations, started new operations, uh, started to invest in technology, started to invest in automation uh, and I've watched that go in, until that was became what I was leading, uh, taking over for uh, the leaders before me. We actually had a retirement party recently, the, the, the four heads of supply chain from uh, the, the person I first met who started in the late 70s to the person I handed the job to. We had a picture of the four of us, and the four generations of Colgate leaders. Yeah, that's impressive. You spent a lot of time overseas as well and doing a, a yeah. lot of work globally yeah. early in your career. Yes. It was funny because one of the things coming out of school, I said, I don't want to work in this area. I'd love to. And, of, of course, the job I got was in Jersey City, which was like 40 minutes from my mm -hmm. home. Uh, and I always talked about uh, going the international assignment. And, you know, luckily that happened for me. I spent, we lived in the Philippines for a couple of years for in Malaysia after that. But then I was uh, in, in division teams because Colgate is broken geographic divisions. 
in Asia, Latin America, one that we used to have called Central Europe and Russia. So I really spent uh, a lot of time, over, matter of fact, I added it up, it was just over 80 countries that I spent at least a week in, over in my career, so. Which is incredibly powerful now yeah. in a highly interconnected world yeah. where it's imperative that chief supply chain officers understand how these countries interrelate, how these trade routes interrelate, uh, and with all the geopolitical challenge, challenges that we're seeing right now, uh, that experience is invaluable. So I uh, hope you give some of it back. I know you are. I'm trying. I'm yeah. trying. And it, but I totally agree with you. you. You have to know what's going on on the ground to be able to make decisions more regionally and globally because that's where the business interacts, right? That's where, you know, exchanges, the transactions happen locally. It's interesting, I was talking to a group the other day of procurement professionals, and all of which are you know, consumed with the inflation challenge, mm -hmm. right? Cost pressure, margin pressure. Not a one of them had lived in an inflationary environment mm -hmm. because you had to go back to the early 80s to have experience. When you and I graduated and entered academy companies, your case, Colgate, my case was GE, same, you know, same trajectory at the beginning of our careers, that was what we were living with. And now all of a sudden, these you know, planners, operators, supply chain professionals, procurement people, all struggling with this uh, economic environment for the first time in their lives. Yeah, I mean, through the, when the pandemic started and we saw the, you know, this, the rise in, in input costs coming, we actually brought people from countries that were hyperinflationary to teach the, the you know, the bigger countries who hadn't put in a price increase in 15 years yep. mm -hmm. how to do it because they did, hadn't seen that in their right. career. Right. They, they didn't know how to raise prices because they didn't have to. That's super wise because yeah. these playbooks are, yes. are are known, right? And if you've yeah. been around long enough, you, you know how to contend it. And it's a real tension, right? Because I think, you know, professionals are out there, uh, you know, supply chain operators are out there trying to figure out how to solve for transformation, how to solve for investment. And yet they're bumping into an environment coming out of COVID where you have this slow growth, you have you know, persistent inflation, even with improvements, it'll take a while for it to return to all levels. And yet they have to find a way to, to continue to transform their businesses. Yeah. Um, it's it curious how you, how you saw that at Colgate. And, it, it was and amazing how things changed. You look at the procurement side where we used to count on a supplier, if I needed some more, we would get more. Now we, they would come to us and say, we, we know you need 10, we can only give you eight, but if you need 10, you got to pay more. So as, the, as your volume went up, your costs went up because they didn't have, they were, it was a you know, finite capacity that was strapped. It was completely reversed of what, how to negotiate uh, things. Letting people have longer view of what you needed was very difficult because we didn't, you know, we hadn't seen business grow like this, you know, and some things that grew in 2020 died in 2021, mm -hmm. and that wasn't necessarily something you could predict either. Did you do a big skew rationalization? We saw some actually skews increased over that time pretty really? dramatically because we were trying to meet, you know, these different demands of product that maybe before didn't. You, know, you talked about the, the hand sanitizers mm -hmm. and, right. and wipes, the, you know, antibacterial wipes. Uh, 
And so we're trying to get them out as, as fast as we can in countries that never had them before. And then all of a sudden that kind of changed, right? Uh, Interesting. Went back. Yeah. So you, you ran into COVID late in your career with lots of cycles of learning behind you. What did you learn from the COVID craziness of 24 yeah. plus months of, of managing and triaging your business? First thing we learned, and it, w and it showed it paid off, that we had spent a good decade on risk management, having backup supplies, having a way. We started changing suppliers and validating people in record time immediately because it was part of a playbook that we had mm -hmm. not just developed and put in a drawer, but we were, it was live. Every year we would change sources to test if it were, and it worked. Uh, so that helped in the short term. Uh, but then where a lot of the risk management resilience was, okay, one country, one site breaks down, you support from the others. Multiple breakdowns were occurring at the same time. No one planned uh, for, for that. So we, we applied our knowledge and uh, early on, one of the things we did was the, the hierarchy of decisions got cut. It can't come to me anymore, it's too slow. It can't, it, we push down the decision so that people can get things and make it happen. And that really saved us. Uh, that w we were able to react very fast. We were measuring things that used to take, you know, 60, 90 days were happening in seven or eight days, you know. So the, the, the un unfortunate or, you know, as things start to stabilize a little, you could see it going back to the 60 and 90 days. So, so it's like if you could keep to that shorter time period, you're, you're a better, a more efficient company, right? Uh, but people were uncomfortable with that lack of control. I wrote a piece in LinkedIn early in the pandemic about risk management. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to highlight my frustration in a way because here I was like everyone else watching the pandemic from my living room, working from home, getting all of this awful news about how terrible supply chains were and felt very uncomfortable that the heroes that were out there that I felt I knew from my network and, and, and former direct reports and people in the industry were working 24 seven to keep the world running. Uh, we're getting a lot of criticism. Did, did you feel during that time that your team was uh, unduly criticized while, while you knew they were trying to to, to be in, in that agility and trying to adjust to the to the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And I had internal arguments with people that I was, you know, you're, you were so used to having everything work all the time. Now it breaks and you think it's our fault. It's not our fault. Okay, the world broke. Uh, you know, and so it, that took a while for your the commercial teams to kind of get that, geez, this isn't an internal breakdown. This is way worse than that, right? So, uh, and the, the other thing that was interesting, I think sometime in mid-2021, someone in an interview like this was like, you know, people are really wanting to get into supply chain now. I go, the people I know want to get out of supply <laughs> chain now <laughs> because this is too hard. And it did get, there was a point there where this <coughs> was just too, it was all negative, no positive, no thanks. Uh, at, at the same time, the supply chain results are actually saving the company. 
because we grew during that time. It wasn't pretty. Uh, it wasn't as cost-effective as it was in the past, and it wasn't as clean, uh, but it did allow for revenue growth. Now, I remember that article. It was pretty much an open address to yep. CEOs and boards mm -hmm. to say, look at your supply chain, acknowledge these people and the work they're doing. Did you find that the CEO of Colgate Palmolive or the board of directors became more aware of the supply chain and supply chain activities? For, for sure. There were many more questions. I was, you know, at, I was questioned quite a bit Hot at seat. board <laughs> meetings, uh, you know, and understand that they had to learn too. You know, they're, they're, they're seeing what they're reading and then what we're experiencing and they're trying to make sense of it all. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it w I thought it was actually good because I got to explain how things really happen, you know, and, and why it's not like it was in the past. Uh, there was a time there I was rooting for stability, and they go, what do you, what do you mean? Uh, you know, they said, the costs aren't going to come down anytime soon, but if I could procure things in a stable way, if I could get, I can, we could start to stabilize the outcomes, which, was, which is kind of what happened. Yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic, w when you have a crisis, no matter what kind of crisis, whether it's a tsunami or, or an earthquake or a fire or all of the things that supply chain people deal with every day, you always look for the personality of the crisis and you ask three questions, right? What is the expected duration? How impactful is it? And how wide is it? In the case of COVID, you didn't have any idea what the expected duration was going to be. It was worldwide, and it affected every single piece of our lives. And so when you talk to the boardroom about investing in resilience, for instance, uh, it raises the conversation to a very strategic level. My challenge at the time was I was saying to CEOs, are you prepared to put money behind this? Because this isn't free. And the cohort that is out there is all looking to get support, to build that resilience, to have uh, the, the, the structure of the supply chain be stronger so that the next time there's a crisis, you don't have that. Did you, did, did you find that support in, in, in as, you, as you prepare the company for future crises? Yeah, I, I think it took some time. It also took the acknowledgement that some of these breakdowns in supply chain are from the demands that we've made for the last 20 years in, you know, who's going to invest in a short-term engagement with, you know, constantly looking for cost decreases, constantly looking for what we called efficiency. So you got a lot of, I mean, if you look at the, the ocean shipping industry, right, you had a lot of old, tired, uh, you know, equipment that couldn't handle a surge, you know, that there was no investment, in, and it was as stable a, a you know, a, an industry for decades, right? And it just got put on its ear. Do you think from your experience, especially at CPG in general, that how do you feel when you hear that maybe we went overboard on lean, that yeah. supply chains were too efficient? Yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah. I really do. Uh, th there's something about consistency that we, you know, we got lulled into like comfort that it was so stable that it's okay and just keep making it cheaper and cheaper and you, you took out the, the foundation of it and it cracked. And you know when a, when a foundation cracks, it's very tough to rebuild. 
So as you look forward then, what's your advice around how to create that stability in the absence of I, I stability think in the outside, you know, the outside world to supply? I, I think, it, again, it, and it sounds easy, it's a balance again to, you need to have resilience built into all your decisions, right? So it, there's a bit of redundancy in that that maybe we didn't pay for in the past that we're going to have to live with because that doesn't, it's not free. Uh, there, there's a bit of uh, planning for multiple variations of something where instead of just one, you, you look, you know, before. One of the things we were uh, benefited from mm -hmm. is you go back, as you said, 10, 20 years, single source supplier, get a partnership, one supplier, you get the lowest cost. Yeah, you do. Sometime around, you know, a decade ago, we started to unravel that and said, we have too many single source suppliers, too much of the business is at risk, start to get redundant suppliers, move the business to, uh, you know, multiple sources, and that really served us well because the, the people that were stuck with just one supplier out of China for their supply chain you know, were, were dead. So as we get close to the end of this podcast, what's your advice for that next generation of chief supply chain officer? What do they do next time? Where should they be focused as they look forward? I, I think they have to look at a balanced approach between you know cost, service, but I also think that their voice has to be heard on the revenue side in, in terms of this is how we're going to drive revenue. This is how we're going to provide it on a consistent basis. These are the opportunities I can create to drive more revenue. Uh, that's the big number in the equation all the time. You, you can't just be put in a cost basket and, and kept to the side. And that's where it came from, but I'm very hopeful that's not where it's going. It, it, you see much more the commercial side is including the supply chain or upfront early and listening, which is always a good thing. We have one last question that uh, we ask on all of our podcasts, and I know I gave you a forewarning about this one. Mike, if you were Chief Supply Chain Officer of the world, what would be your priorities for transforming the world's supply chains? I look at that as, as a, a pretty simple, and it goes to, so today, chief supply chain officers are transforming the supply chain for their business. Mm -hmm. So they're, in effect, sub-optimizing the world to optimize their business. If I was the chief supply chain officer for the world, I would be optimizing the world's supply chain, probably using a lot of the same techniques, but making sure that, at the end of the day, the the world is taken care of because there's a lot of waste when you, when you just the way it's been done it's by design built in waste extra capacity that's not being used you know empty miles that are everywhere mm -hmm. still and so if you're doing it for the world you can optimize it for the world now there's you know probably competition laws that wouldn't let <laughs> you do that but, but that's what I would Great. Well, thank you so much for the discussion today. Angel, any last words from you? No, look, I think uh, Mike touched on a number of topics that we can expand on in perhaps other podcasts. But uh, thank you for all of the work you've done at uh, Colgate. It's uh, 40 years of incredibly transformative work. Uh, and congratulations.
Thank you, and thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Big Ideas in Supply Chain. <laughs>